Welcome everyone. How nice it is that so many people would be interested in learning about loving kindness on a summer evening. And I'm sure you realize that these two weeks, it's just going to be an introduction. This is hopefully something that becomes part of our life. This both a general but also a formal interest in loving kindness. And one of the real astounding things in the world is that all of us, each in our own way, we've experienced the natural expression or the natural qualities of love in our life, moments of compassion, moments of basic human warmth. And we've realized all of us directly, how healing, how appropriate, how skillful it is. Like It's just easier to respond appropriately in the different situations in our life. So even though on some level there's nobody in the room that would want to debate that kindness is skillful, that caring for each other is a useful, functional, appropriate way, to be, but it's just interesting that we haven't made it a systematic study in our life. I think part of it is that we might not believe that, I mean, we have this, this is a a kind of spiritual helplessness where we we may feel like there are wholesome things in life, wholesome qualities of the mind, but there's a helplessness where we think there's nothing I can do about it. When I'm angry, I'm just angry. When In those moments when there is a, a natural warmth or kindness or quality of generosity, that's just like an accident. And, you know, it's nice when it lasts. But the way the Buddha taught and just generally is true in this tradition of practice is this understanding that things are conditional. Like things aren't accidental or... They don't just happen for no good reason. Things arise conditionally. So the unwholesome, agitating qualities of the mind, they arise conditionally. And the beautiful qualities of mind, they arise also conditionally, lawfully. And this can be understood if we pay attention mindfully, mindful of the mind, basically mindful of the way the heart is, will learn this terrain. And that's partly what these two classes are about. In particular, learning the terrain of the beautiful qualities of heart, which we call the four divine abodes, or the qualities of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. But you can put in this basket, I mean, this is just one way of dividing all the beautiful emotions of the heart, but you could probably have divided it in any number of different ways. But basically, how do we recognize the wholesome, beautiful qualities of the heart? How do we strengthen those qualities? How do we get out of the way so that our experience of love, these wholesome qualities, is what we say in the Buddhist traditions, is boundless or immeasurable, universal. So it's not even, I'm being loving, I'm being compassionate, I'm being joyful, I'm being equanimous. But that these qualities, 
they arise and they're really an expression of nature, a beautiful expression of nature, but in a sense, they're not bounded by my personality. It's not something my personality is generating. The role of the personality is to learn how to get out of the way, to learn how to recognize and then get out of the way so that these natural qualities of heart can express themselves. So hopefully, even after two sessions, and I know a number of you, so many of you have been practicing for years, but hopefully after two, even two sessions, just practicing and then practicing at home, at the very least, we'll leave with some more confidence in the basic goodness of the heart. And in some ways, the good-heartedness is a better translation for the word metta, which usually gets translated as loving-kindness. There's a basic goodness or a basic good-heartedness that is accessible, is available, and in a way can be set free. But it requires that we recognize it and that we don't walk around, live our life with a very strong, somewhat fixed idea that we're bad, that we're angry, that we're impatient. When I used to think, catch myself so many times saying, I'm a bad speller. And one of the fruits of my Buddhist meditation practice is one day I realized, I don't have to keep saying that to myself. And this is true with all of the different limitations that we impose on the mind. I mean, clearly, it's a bit of a joke to say, I'm a bad speller, is sort of relatively small. But all the terrible ways that we limit this life because of how we define ourselves. And so, through this practice, we overcome that habit. It doesn't mean that we're not going to be mean or impatient or stingy, unkind, afraid of opening to suffering. But we're not going to take those experiences and define our whole life according to those particular emotions that arose at that particular time. And one of the things you'll see as you practice that no matter how angry the mind can get, or any other, you could just name your any your your own particular favorite agitating destructive emotion. So no matter how much we can get caught in our particular destructive emotional pattern, it's anybody here already is capable of this simple move, which is recognizing that the mind is under the influence of this destructive emotion and caring about it. Right? Is there anybody here who can't do that? So when we find ourselves caught up in a lot of jealousy, a lot of resentment, a lot of defensiveness, a lot of feelings of shame, of guilt, nobody loves me, a lot of fear and retreating from the world because it seems too overwhelming, feeling a victim. So when we're caught in one or another agitating emotion, it's not actually that difficult as long as we've this has been pointed out and we've practiced a little, to notice that destructive emotion, that emotional state, to notice the pain of it, the limitation, the narrowness of it, and to care about it. So that the pain of that destructive, narrow emotion 
is actually the cause for moving the heart. Oh, this mind state, this quality of mind hurts. I care about it. In the same way, it isn't that hard. If you see a squirrel limping in the backyard, we had a squirrel in our area by our house that looked really beat up. I don't know if it had a disease or what. And uh, when my wife and I, we try to feed it. But every time you'd see it, it's like so easy for the heart to respond. We just want to take care of it. And it's exactly the same way. When we see our heart under the influence of a destructive emotion, if we actually see the destructive emotion as a painful destructive emotion, it breaks the heart in a beautiful way. Oh, I care about this destructive state of mind. This is a natural movement of the mind. And this is how we transform. It's a bit of alchemy. We, we can transform states of mind. We are not destined, because we've been conditioned to be angry or defensive or impatient or you know whatever your particular habit, personality habits are, we're not destined to be lost in those patterns forever. And hating those patterns is just more of the same. Thinking we can get rid of them is often a subtle kind of violence, more of the same. But to care about them is different. It really is transforming. So I'm going to start tonight with a guided meditation that's a little different than the formal practice that some of you might have done. And then, well, then I'll talk a little bit after that guided sit. And then we'll save the last 20 minutes and I'll do the more formal instructions. And some of you may not have picked up the handout, but I have more copies and I'll just leave them here. So if you didn't get one on the way in, you can pick one on the way out. And it has the instructions for the formal loving kindness practice and compassion practice. Many of you have seen these instructions before, but feel free to pick up a handout if you didn't get one. So do what you can to be comfortable. Because in many ways the loving-kindness practices, compassion practices, their concentration practices, it's nice to be relatively comfortable so the discomfort of the body won't be too much of a distraction for our practice. You might want to take a deep breath or two just to settle in. Fill the lungs to their capacity, exhaling completely. But even this activity of taking a few deep breaths can be done with gentleness and a simple way of caring, taking care of the body. So in the most basic way, we're nourishing the body by taking a couple of consciously deep breaths. And maybe one more time, take your time. And eventually let the breath continue on its own. And 
And we'll practice receiving the sound of the bell. And even something this simple can be an act of kindness. For most people, the sound of the bell is pleasant. Receiving something pleasant is joyful. can be an act of kindness. So just sitting here, and as you probably realize, our primary relationship in this life is the relationship with the body. If there's no loving-kindness with the body, it's not so easy to have loving-kindness arising, manifesting in any other part of our life. Just noticing the quality of the heart relating to the experience of sitting now. How is the heart relating to the sensations of the body sitting? Indifferent, bored, impatient, or perhaps kind. Accepting, allowing the body to be the way that it is, not needing the body to be different than what it is now. In the most simple way, what would it be now to embrace the experience of the body the basic friendliness. This basic sense that the body has a right to be here the way that it is now. That it makes no sense to reject the sensations of the body because This is how it is. This is how the body is now. So we're seeing that to be mindful, to be awake to how the body is, requires this basic kindness that we call metta, this basic good-heartedness. Just the willingness to be close, to the experience of sitting, the way that it actually is now in the body. Notice that this is kindness itself, just to be aware that sitting is like this. Not needing the body to be other than the way that it is now. 
And especially as we learn how to sustain this loving present moment awareness of the body, this sustaining quality, not forgetting the body, it really is this warm embrace, this kind attention. And you might want to coordinate this loving attention with the breath. So as you're breathing in, you can even repeat the word yes. As if you're saying to the sensations of the body that you're aware of each time you breathe in, it's as if you're saying yes, you have a right to be here. These sensations have a right to be here, yes. And then if you'd like, with the exhalation, you could repeat the phrase, something really simple like, I care about this body. Breathing in, you can repeat silently the word yes. Exhaling, I care about this body or I care about this life. So try that now for a couple minutes. So remember, as you're breathing in, just a regular inhalation. There's a sense of including the experience of the body. So the in-breath is also connected to this inclusivity of attention, including all the sensations of the body. Yes, the big yes to the whole body experience. And then with each exhalation, There's a simple generosity of the heart offering this kind wish. I care about this body. Or I care about the way that it is now. Or it could be quite simple, just repeating the word love or kindness with the exhalation. Yes with the in-breath. Love or ease with the out-breath.
keep coming back to the simple practice, even if it feels a little dry, just do your best as you're breathing in to connect with this capacity of the heart to include the experience of the body. So we're simply saying yes to the way the sensations are in the body right now. And then with each exhalation, we're remembering that it's possible for the heart to care about the way that it is. We care about this life, this body. Ease. Keep coming back to this simple practice. Breathing in, saying yes as you simply feel the body sitting, willing to be close, willing to be right in the middle of the experience of the body sitting, saying yes. And then with each exhalation, being generous, wishing the body well. May you be at ease. I care about this body. And as we're doing this for another minute or two, just appreciating how wholesome it is to be sitting, being aware of the body, and abiding in wholesome, kind thoughts for the body, toward the body. Nothing strange or inappropriate in this at all.
for the last few seconds, let go of the words. Just noticing the quality of the heart. In other words, notice how the heart or mind is, is relating to how it is. In other words, is the mind, the heart tight or open? Is the heart or mind inclusive? or exclusive, soft or hard, wide or narrow, just notice how it is, without judgment. I care about this heart right now, the way that it is. May this heart be at ease. And of course, just as I care about this heart, this mind, this body right here and now, realizing that even with my eyes closed, knowing there are these other people here in the room with me, and just as I care about this life, this mind and body, everybody cares about their life, their mind and body, in just the same way. So we include each other then. Just as I care about this life, may all of the lives here in this room, all the people here, may we all be at ease, safe, happy, and at ease not just those of us here in the room, but our loved ones, our family and friends, and all beings without exception. May all beings be at ease. Stretch out your legs if you need to, just so you're comfortable. Would you be willing to turn the top two lights up a little bit more? Yeah, not all the way, but yeah, that's good. And then the other one too. Great, perfect. Probably most of you know me, but if you don't, my name's Mark Nunberg, and I'm the guiding teacher here at Common Ground. And there are very few things in life that are more joyful than teaching loving-kindness. <laughs> It'd be the ideal job, right, to teach loving-kindness. It really is quite nice. So I really like being able to do this. I thought it might be nice just to take a few minutes if people have any sharings, what was that like to do it? Even if you practice for a long time, it's fine to share, or if you're brand new to it. And you can be quite honest. Don't, don't feel like you have to say it was great, and my heart had this warm, radiant glow you probably noticed, and things like that. You just 
Like, how was it? And what was challenging about it? And what felt good about it? Any questions about the instructions? And we'll do a different style, slightly different style later, but I just want to check in. So how was that for people? Lovely. Lovely? <laughs> Other thoughts? There's some images, I don't know if you heard. What's your name? Jen. Jen? What Jen was saying about, uh, uh, you know, initially when she opened to the experience of the body, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a strong feeling. But as she, in, what was that other phrase you used? You mentioned. You're welcome here. Yeah. So she used that phrase, you're welcome here. And that's, like, this is one of the things that I'm trying to get across in the first class is, Loving kindness or the basic good heartedness, one of the ways to really recognize the qualities it is this including the mind or the heart's willingness to include the way that it is. So, and it's neat how we creatively find our own phrases, our own particular images and phrases that remind, basically, the mind is reminding itself or the heart is reminding itself that it can include, that it's safe to include, that it's healing and enlivening to include. And the reason that is, is because it's already this way. The body, for example, which we were using, the body is already this way now. So to not include it means that the mind or the heart is actively excluding it. And that's what's so uh, toxic, really when we're cutting ourselves off or separating ourselves in different ways. And we separate ourselves from other living beings, we separate ourselves from our own body, we separate ourselves from our lives in so many different ways, cut off, and we, we're basically cutting off life, the movement of life. And then we feel depressed and unhealthy, mentally, emotionally, physically unhealthy, and we wonder why. So... This is a really useful um, piece to remember because we have so much baggage around the word love and kindness. So to operationalize it in this very visceral sense of including, the willingness to include, to say, yes, you belong here. You're allowed to be here. This isn't a mistake. The way the body is right now, the way my mind is, like even if my mind is really upset or being obnoxious or but to, to understand the lawfulness like well of course it's like this now given everything that's arisen of course this is how the body is this is how the mind is this is how the world is it the only thing that's saying is to include doesn't mean we like it doesn't mean that it's wholesome what we're including but it is the way that it is 
And then Jen mentioned that as she continued the experience of the body, she used the word started, she felt more tingling, is that the word you use? But, but what, the way I would probably describe it, it's like the experience comes alive. Because life, the moment, the way it is, it's inherently interesting. And being disconnected is inherently boring and unhealthy on all levels. So just by opening, all of a sudden, it's easier to open. Isn't that interesting? Just by opening to life, wherever, whatever crack, whatever corner we, begin, we can begin to open to, to include, then all of a sudden it's easier to include others. And that's how Jen ended her comment. It's like at the end, it was relatively easy. It's like an upwelling of the heart. It just flows out. It wants to go out. It's not like we have to try. It just will go out. But the, the key is to start somewhere. So in the formal practice that we'll do at the end tonight, we always begin where it's easy to find the place, the easiest place in our life where feelings of friendliness and loving kindness can naturally flow, get it flowing, get it moving. And then when it starts to move, when it feels like there's just a natural capacity to wish well, then we'll start including others that maybe weren't initially so easy. And you can always go back to the easy one, too. Yeah, do you have a comment? Mm -hmm. Nice and loud for folks. I don't know why I do, but when I start to kind of allow myself to kind of be open to the emotions kind of what you're talking about, for whatever reason, it's just like a wall to go up and the mind just go do something totally different, grocery list or the, you know, um, whatever it may be. Yeah. So is there a way, I don't know if it's like a defense mechanism or what it is, just... It's like a slow down. Is there any way to help them become a little bit more open or waste kind of less than that wall? Yeah, never give up. <laughs> really. Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, has had a beautiful provocative image of cool water, drip by drip, landing on red hot metal. You know? And what's the response? <laughs> But if, they, if we just keep that up, one drop, it's going to cool down. So there are some defenses. The mind is like uh, the Titanic. You know, maybe you saw that not-so-good movie, in my humble opinion. But anyway, that's a big boat. It's got a lot of momentum. It's not easy to turn, Right? It's the same thing with our mind, you know, if we've been impatient a lot in our life or indifferent a lot in our life or resistant a lot in our life or cold a lot in our life, then, then we get interested in these practices and we start to do it. Well, there's a lot of momentum in this other direction toward a more narrow, reactive mind states, right? And now we're we're cultivating, intentionally cultivating more open, responsive, including inclusive mind states, and it's going to get a reaction. Sometimes the reaction is in the form of disconnection. It's like, like we just lose it. Sometimes it's an actual waves of, waves of anger. There you are doing love and kindness practice, and you get a lot of irritation. You hate the practice. I mean, like, livid. 
I was I did one of my first longer retreats back in or way back uh, was a loving kindness retreat. So all day long, as long as you were awake, you were doing the loving kindness practice. And my mind really started to hate it. <laughs> that was amazing. It's like I mean the phrases I, I was just repeating four phrases for nine days straight, all day long. So it's not like I could forget them, but my mind would refuse to remember what the phrase is. So I had to write them down, put them in front of me, and I would kept my eyes open. And even then, it's like my mind would refuse, so I'd have to go out into the woods, and I would, you know, like it was this cathartic effort to keep my mind repeating the phrases, because it just didn't want to do it. But something happened, it was really a useful exercise. So, when you take this up as a formal practice, so there's two parts to what we'll be doing in the next two weeks. One is the informal understanding of loving-kindness just as a force in the mind or in the heart. Learning to recognize it, learning to be sort of creatively, nimbly uh, supportive of it, just in all the little corners of our life. And then the other thing we'll be doing is systematically training. So, putting aside some time every day, I'd say ideally a minimum of 20 minutes, ideally more like 40 minutes a day for the next two weeks, where you're doing this practice, or the next two years. You don't have to stop after two weeks. And then that formal training, though, you're going to get some response. You know, you either fall asleep, or you get the mind will just forget it, or you feel more obvious resistance to it. But the idea is, during the formal training, we just keep doing it. As soon as we recognize that we're not doing it, we start again. There's an interesting article that you can Google and get. It's called, Metta Means Goodwill, by Ajahn Tanisaro. He's a well-known Buddhist monk, a Westerner. He is the abbot of a monastery outside of San Diego, and he's a wonderful author and teacher. And in this article about loving-kindness, about metta, he uses the translation of goodwill for it. He, uh, he talks about the Buddha's famous discourse on loving-kindness. And in that discourse, some of you know this, the Buddha has a, a line, something like, uh, just as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so should you, sometimes it's translated, cherish all living beings. But the, the actual translation, the more accurate translation is, just as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so should you protect the quality of love, the, the quality of goodwill in your heart, right? So we can't protect all beings like a mother protects her child, her only child. That's just not going to happen. It's not even appropriate. There are a lot of living beings that don't want us to protect them, like those of you who have teenage children. <laughs> they don't want you to protect them as if they were your only child. They want you to leave them alone. And a lot of other people want us to leave them alone. And, you know, wild animals, for the most part, want us to leave them alone. They don't want us to protect them with our lives. So... But what we, what the Buddha is saying, and this makes a lot of sense to me, and I think it's an important clarification, we want to protect the feeling of loving kindness. We want to protect that attitude. And another very provocative discourse the Buddha 
gave this very powerful image, and that the discourse is titled The Two-Handed Saw, or The Simile of the Saw, it's another way it's translated as the title for this talk, where he says, even if bandits, bad guys, you know, were to grab you, mug you, tie you down, and saw off your limbs with a two-handed saw, you should maintain in your heart feelings of loving-kindness. If you're to consider yourself somebody following these teachings. So what the Buddha is doing, he's coming up with the most provocative image and he, as a way of saying, there's never a moment where it's not useful to have the quality of love in the heart. It doesn't mean that some moments are really difficult to maintain the quality of love, but it never helps to have hate in our heart. Even if we can justify it, because these people are being mean to me, and they're cutting off my arms, it doesn't make the moment any better to hate them. It just makes it worse to hate them. It'd be much better to understand that their actions are coming out of their own suffering. Where else would actions like that come from? Their own delusion, their own narrowness of mind, their own whatever, that would make somebody do something terrible like that. And to care, that not only, I mean, to care for our own pain and suffering in those moments, but to care for anybody involved in that, that would be a more skillful response. So we really want to protect, once you get a sense of the value of loving kindness, as like, you trust it, do you trust it with your life, right? And this is what I meant at the very beginning when I said it's very interesting that we haven't systematically cultivated loving-kindness because even doing a little reflection like we've done already tonight, it becomes pretty clear to us like this is a really useful quality to have in the mind at all times. It only helps. It never gets in the way. Another image in the Buddhist tradition about loving-kindness is it knows how to meet the moment. And the image, the simile is, just like when you pour water into any kind of vessel, the water immediately fills the shape of the vessel perfectly. It doesn't like have any problems, any resistance. It just naturally, effortlessly knows how to fill that space. And this is the, the image or the definition of loving kindness or a heart that is willing to include a heart that connects with the way that it is, it knows how to respond. When we have a lot of loving-kindness, we don't need a plan and how to be a nice person or how to take care of this person. Just to be loving, just to be in that basic good-heartedness, that basic friendliness, we'll know what to say, what not to say, how to be. We don't need to plan it out. We just need to know how to get back to that place of loving-kindness, basic friendliness of the heart. That's what we need to do. Otherwise, we think, like, in order to be kind, I need a strategy for every conceivable situation that could arise in my life and what kindness would look like, what compassion would look like in that situation. But there's just no way we can figure that all out. And actually, it's a kind of violence to try to have it all mapped out. And that's like the heart of right parenting. You know, even there's... They even doesn't really sell books because it doesn't take very long to explain this, but it's like the art of being a really good parent is to be really grounded 
in the experience, in the direct, immediate experience of basic goodness, basic friendliness. And if we can maintain that, even if we don't, even if we didn't have good parenting modeled for us when we were a kid, we'll learn it. Because one of the things about being grounded in basic good-heartedness is it's a very sensitive place to be. So if we start doing something that's really unskillful, it's going to be seen, it's going to be felt in the heart. Oh, this isn't working. This isn't helping. The other nice thing about being in that is it's so trustworthy that we don't really... We're not really thrown off by how the world responds. We see it, we're sensitive to it, but we trust our good intentions. So we take the information, we learn from it, but we're not thrown off by our mistakes or by how the world responds to us. Because we trust that we care, that we're not trying to hurt or harm, we're trying to be helpful, supportive. Any other comments about the sit tonight before I pass on a little bit more information? Or did you experience challenges or things that felt good, success like success? I remember some here today that was very frustrating to me that I probably was a lot more loving kindness is to be less angry and frustrating. So that's a good work, and I passed through my mind while I was doing the meditation. And I didn't care about it. I didn't, I wasn't frustrated by it. I wasn't angry about it. I could just look at it and go, eh. So I, I felt like ground, that groundedness that lets you not get upset about other people and what they're doing, or comparing what they're doing with what you were doing. You're just doing what you're doing, and they're doing it. Yeah. What's your name? Laurel was talking about equanimity, and it's important because equanimity is behind all of these wholesome qualities of heart. In a way, you could say there's really no wholesome quality of heart without equanimity. And we've all seen this in ourselves, and it's easier to see in other people, where, where on the surface it may seem like the person has a lot of kindness or compassion, but they're attached, or they're, they've got an agenda, an expectation. And it really ruins it. So real love, real joy, real compassion has, is backed by equanimity. When love or kindness doesn't have equanimity, there's attachment. I love you because I want something back. I at least want you to recognize that I love you and appreciate it. You know? But that's not love, that's attachment. It looks like love, but it's not. Or compassion, like I care about your suffering... But you better be getting better fast because I'm giving you all this care and I expect some results from my compassion. And that's, you know, that's not compassion. Compassion is a tenderness of heart, a willingness to show up regardless of whether their pain goes away or not. It may not go away. Some people's suffering that we open to is just going to get worse. And the fact that we care about their suffering Caring about someone's suffering isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with whether that suffering is going to increase or decrease. The causes for the increase or decrease of someone's suffering is often independent of the fact that we really care about them. But that doesn't mean it isn't a beautiful thing to do. 
but they may not be able to receive even that. So we really need to have all of these practices backed by equanimity. And equanimity itself is sometimes tricky to understand, because sometimes it looks like equanimity, but it's really an indifference, where we're basically imposing on the mind this sense, it's all okay, I'm not going to react. And so it's a kind of distancing. So one of the things we want to look out for when we have equanimity is, is it, a, is it an equanimity that involves distancing? Like I'm the observer, observing my life, observing other people over there. Or is it an equanimity that allows us to be right in the middle of the pain, the confusion, the limitations of life, the limitations of our personality, the parts of our personality that we're not so pleased with? Can we be right in the middle of it and still be equanimous with it? Because this equanimity comes from a wisdom that understands that this is how it is. This is lawful. This is the lawful expression of my personality. When I get defensive or neurotic, it's the lawful expression of this personality, what's been set in motion. I don't need to be afraid of it. I should care about it. I should be willing to include it. That's the act of kindness. Same with joy. The, there's a shadow to joy, too, where we start taking the, the joy personally. And it's like we're um, doing riffs off of how great it is, how beautiful it is, how sweet it is. I am, you are. It doesn't matter whether it's internal or external. But we're in an ego trip about how beautiful or good it is. And that's also taking it personally. It's not including, because now we're in our own world. And so we distance ourselves from what's actually beautiful right here and now. Thanks, Laurel, for bringing that up. That's good. So um, I want to share a little bit more, and then we'll stretch our legs. And we'll take the last 20 minutes or so, and we'll do a more formal practice that's similar to the instructions that are in the handout. So I just want to mention four aspects of loving-kindness. And you can just be on the lookout for fruits. And in a way, it's cumulative. When we really understand the first, we begin to understand the second. When we really understand the second, we begin to understand the third. When we understand the third, we begin to understand the fourth. So it's really going from gross to subtle. So the grossest, most basic fruit of understanding love, basic goodness, goodwill of the heart, is it's very protecting. And in the Buddhist tradition, this is what you do. Like, if you grew up in a traditional Buddhist culture and you were in a really dangerous situation, you would have been trained to bring up, maybe even chant loving-kindness. You may not feel loving-kindness, but you could just bring the word up. That would be protecting, thought to be protecting. And you could just experiment with this in your own life when you're really afraid, when you're really angry, don't so much try to have love or compassion for the person you're angry at, but find somewhere where you can bring up love. Maybe love for yourself or compassion for yourself or your pet. Think of your cat lying on your bed at home or whatever. Because the reason it's protecting is, and you can just check this out for yourself, when there is love or kindness, basic goodwill, in the mind. Anger doesn't fit. When anger is dominating the mind, it's not so easy to bring in loving kindness. 
So the image the Buddha uses is just as you would take a nice solid wooden peg and use it to pound out an old rotten peg. You know how they used to build with pegs instead of nails? They'd have a peg that would hold the two pieces of wood together. In the same way, you can bring up a thought of loving-kindness. And in doing that, you're protecting the mind from thoughts of ill will. When we're caught in ill will, it seems so important to continue those thoughts, because they deserve it. (laughs) It feels strangely protecting to keep dwelling with thoughts of ill will, thoughts of fear, you know, impatience. So we have to, with practice, see the insanity of dwelling with hatred. Hatred doesn't lead to anything but more hatred. We've got to really get this in our bones, that it's, it's quite literally insane, unhealthy, toxic. And so how can we insert, how can we bring up a thought of loving-kindness? This is the basic alchemy of the practice, and it really comes out of the recognition that the experience of loving-kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity profoundly protecting. So to the degree we can abide in those, with those qualities, we are immune to negative states of mind. And this is like a very interesting practice. So when you wake up tomorrow morning or as you leave here tonight, it's like just as an experiment in truth. How can I negotiate all the twisted turns between leaving the building and falling asleep tonight? How can I negotiate all those moments of my life maintaining wholesome qualities of loving-kindness and compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity? And it's like we need all kinds of different skillful means to keep it alive, like keep that fire alive, keep that quality of life. Because like I said, love knows how to meet every moment. If If we're running into a lot of suffering, then love expresses itself as compassion. If we're meeting a lot of confusion, it expresses itself as equanimity. If it's meeting a lot of beauty and goodness, it expresses itself as joy, appreciative joy, gratitude. Otherwise, it's just basic friendliness, this willingness to include. So that's the idea, just to have that thread continue all the way through life, never losing it. And then when we do lose it, we want to... We want to have a real, authentic sense of danger, that the mind, the heart, is in danger. Not to get bound up in a fear state, but to release that, what did Sarah Palin call it? The mama grizzly, right? I always want to see if I can quote Sarah Palin at least once. (laughs) She is a human being who suffers just like the rest of us, who is perfectly acting out her conditioning just like the rest of us are, right? No different, really. So anyway, and that's a good point, because there is a place for the mama grizzly to manifest in her life. So when we do fall into states, which we're going to do all the time, negativity, anger, ill will, fear, suffering, jealousy for the goodness we see in others instead of appreciation, then we want that mama grizzly to rise and to see. Honey, this is insane. In the same way, some of you are parents, 
In the same way, if your child were about to do something stupid and stick a fork in the electrical outlet, you're going to just grab that kid and pull them away. You're not going to like try to be gentle. You're just going to fearlessly do whatever you can do. This happened at the time of the Buddha that one of, I think it was a king, was uh, kind of questioning the Buddha. He was trying to get the better of the Buddha in a, in a debate sort of thing, situation and said, you know, what you said to this monk, this person who was uh, really being unskillful, and the Buddha scolded him in a way that was probably hurtful. And, and the Buddha, and this person, this king said to the Buddha, you know, you talk a lot about non-harming, but what you said to that person clearly was harm, hurt, hurt that person. And the Buddha said, uh, forget exactly how he responded, but he gave this simile to the king. If your prince, princess, your little daughter, got a stick caught in her throat or her mouth, what would you do? And the king said, well, I'd reach my hand in there and I'd pull it out, even if it ended up cutting her. And the Buddha says, well, just so. You know, so in the same way, like if we see ourselves caught up in negativity, we should respond skillfully, but we shouldn't hold back. Because we're in danger. And when we're in danger, it's appropriate to respond out of compassion. So we really want to have that sense of protection. Like maintaining states of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is how we take care of ourselves. More than anything else, it's much more protecting than having a lot of money. As useful as it is to have enough money. I mean... Nobody would argue that poverty is a good thing. It isn't a good thing. But if you're going to be in poverty, it'd be really useful to be able to abide in states of loving kindness. I've spent some time in other places where there is a lot of, I mean, there's bad enough poverty around here, but places, other places in the world where there's terrible poverty. And I've seen people abiding in wholesome states in really impoverished conditions who are probably a lot happier than a lot of middle-class Americans with tremendous luxury. So, if you had to choose, we may choose wealth because we don't know any better, but I'm, gu- I'm guessing that if we once we practice, we'll realize it's better to choose the states of kindness and compassion than it is material wealth and even physical health. But... That's not something to believe, it's something to check out in your own life. It's true. So that's the first, is that loving kindness is really protecting. Once we realize that, we really get more of a sense of the path. Like once we just get the basic protection, like once we start experiencing these wholesome qualities, then we start to get how unwholesome the other qualities are. And this whole world comes alive where we finally realize what to do to be skillful. Well, we just need to pay attention to loving kindness. We practice not forgetting it. Because as soon as we forget it, we're not in that, that nimble place of like, well, how can I keep it alive in this moment? What might love, kindness, appreciation, compassion, equanimity look like, express itself as in this moment? Right? Because it's going to look differently in every single moment. Because it's going to meet the moment appropriately. So once we get the, 
the difference between skillful and unskillful, states of basic goodness versus states of separation, self-centeredness, neurotic fear and anger and greed. Once we start to get the difference, we start to feel empowered. This is the beginning of a feeling of joy, inner joy, like a trusting of the heart, the basic goodness of the heart. So this is a real switch. It's really the second and third sections that I'm talking about now where we were kind of using loving kindness to break cycles of negativity. And then we get lost again in negativity and we use loving kindness to where we see that loving kindness is actually the very nature of the heart and mind. So when we get lost, there's some intuitive sense that it's just temporary and that we'll find our way back to loving kindness. And this really starts to bring up some confidence in the basic goodness of the heart. Now, it's like a gravitational pull we can't forget. Even when we find ourselves being really defensive or really mean or really caught in some way, it's like we don't really believe it's who we are. It's just a manifestation of like this perfect way that's triggering all this old programming, like the Titanic, you know. It's going to run into the Titanic, but we know better. I mean, it's going to run into the iceberg. We know better. You know, we know we should turn around, and we're doing everything we can. So we're already relating. There we are acting out our defensiveness, acting out our narrowness, our impatience. But we know better. You know, I bet you already know this experience sometimes. We can't help ourselves, but we're at least relating to these negative states that we're caught in skillfully because we know they're not self. It's just a conditioned habit of mind that has a certain momentum. And we're already, even they're caught in it, we're already forgiving ourselves because we understand it's not self. It can't, if it could be other than this right now, it would be other than this right now. But I can't be anything but defensive right now, and I care about it. And I care about the harm it's causing those of you I'm interacting with. Right? You see what a powerful step in the right direction this is? Because we could be hating ourselves for being defensive, for being unskillful. We could be judging, we could be layering on unskillfulness on top of unskillfulness. And then more. And then we get this huge heap of it, lost in it. So once you get to the point, that's really what I mean by this third stage, where you can't forget the goodness of the heart. So eventually, uh, this is our refuge. And then the last stage is where this goodness of heart, there's nothing personal about it. We trust it, we see it, and we don't even need to claim it as mine. It's like this goodness is really the ultimate or underlying nature of things. It's not me who's good, me who's kind, me who's joyful or appreciative, grateful. It's just gratitude. It's just love. And this is so good because then we don't personally feel like we have to hold on to it or personally need other people to recognize it because it's not personal. Now that's a more rarefied experience. So you may not know that clearly. That doesn't mean you haven't bumped into it, but it may not have stood out because it's a pretty subtle experience. But that's the direction we go, where the the beautiful qualities of heart aren't seen as personal.
initially, it's really important to see them as being somewhat personal because there's something really therapeutic, something healing about seeing that goodness in the heart because it, it helps to force out the wrong belief that we're basically bad or stingy or narrow, you know, that we're a beast that needs to be controlled. That's a, a pervasive view a lot of us have. You know, we're just an inch away from being terrible. And it's true. I mean, we have, all of us, we have pretty negative patterns that have been conditioned in. And given the right circumstances, we could probably do some pretty terrible things. Or, probably more accurate, we have done some pretty terrible things in our lives. But that is not self. That's a conditioned habit that has arisen. And when these conditioned habits are seen for what they are, then what's left is a heart that isn't separate from anything. And that's what we mean by the basic goodness. A heart that isn't separate from anything. Isn't conceiving of any separation. Isn't constructing ideas of being apart. And that love, that compassion and joy and equanimity, that's immeasurable. doesn't really have any boundaries, doesn't run out. Okay, I'm tired of being compassionate or kind or loving. It doesn't run out because it isn't being manufactured by a person. It's, in a sense, what's left. So that's just a little background of the evolution of the practice. And let's stretch our legs and then we'll take the last 20 minutes and do some more formal practice. And feel free to take a chair if you'd prefer. And then whenever you feel ready, you can sit down. settling in, you might just <clears throat> reflect a little and bring to mind somebody who's easy to love. And for some of you, it will be bringing yourself to mind. You could just have a sense of this life right here, this body and mind. But for others, it might be easier to bring a pet to mind, or a niece, a nephew, a grandchild to mind, or some mentor that you've had in your life who was really there for you in an important way, teacher. It's useful to have somebody who's still alive, bring somebody who's alive to mind, not somebody who's passed away. And it doesn't have to be the perfect person, just somebody easy to love. And as you're bringing this person to mind, some images, a felt sense, Notice how your heart feels as you bring them to mind. Bring some memories to mind.
And you can repeat in your mind something simple like, I care about you. Or you might even say the person's name, dear, and then say the person's name, I care about your life. Or if you're working with yourself, then just change the pronouns, I care about this life right here, this heart. Let's continue to feel the heart as I repeat the four traditional phrases. Each time I say a phrase, then you can silently repeat the phrase in your heart, in your mind, connect with the meaning of the words for a few seconds, and then we'll go on to the second phrase. May you be safe and protected in all ways. May your heart be happy and peaceful. And may your body be healthy and strong. And may you take care of your life with ease and joy. May you be safe and protected in all ways. May your heart be happy and peaceful. And may you be healthy and strong. May you take care of your life with ease and joy. I'll go through the phrases one more time. Again, you can always say the person's name whenever it seems useful. Dear friend, may you be safe and protected in all ways. May your heart be happy and peaceful. May you be healthy, strong. May you take care of your life with ease and joy. Now do it a few times on your own. And it's okay to change the phrase or phrases so that it's more meaningful to you. But don't make it complicated. Keep it simple. Remembering the person, feeling the heart, and offering each phrase as a simple, wholesome gift of your good wish.
No need to rush, just find a satisfying rhythm in the practice. Always beginning again and again. And if you haven't worked with yourself yet, then you might change. Or if you have been working with yourself, you might want to bring to mind another being. Take the time to have a real felt sense of this being you're working with, with yourself. I care about this life right here. This heart, this body. May this life be safe and protected in all ways. And may the heart be happy and peaceful. May this body be healthy and strong. And may I take care of this life with ease and joy. So just continue on your own.
So we're using the phrases to uncover the basic generosity of the heart. That the heart that is willing to offer a very simple good wish. Remember, you can simplify how you practice. It could be a simple phrase. May this heart be safe and happy. And just to take some time to work with the other categories, just so you have a sense. So we always begin where it's easy. We make sure to practice with ourselves. Then you could bring to mind a dear friend or family members. And now tonight, let's just bring to mind a group of the dear ones in our lives our good friends, family members. Just have a visual sense of all the people who are dear to the heart. I care about these friends and family. May you all be safe in all ways. May your hearts be happy and peaceful. May you be healthy. And may you take care of your lives with ease and joy. And in a sense of all the neutral people, all the people we kind of know, but we don't really have strong feelings about, like some of our neighbors who we hardly know, The people in this room, we know they're there, but we don't really know them. Don't have strong feelings either way. People at work. All the living beings on this planet, not just human beings, but other living beings. Just as I wish to be safe and happy, all these other neutral living beings, they also want to be safe and happy. So just as I wish for safety, may you also be safe in your life. Just as I wish for happiness and peace in the heart, may your hearts be happy and peaceful. May you be healthy. And may all of us together take care of our lives with ease. And even the challenging, the difficult people in our lives, the people who have harmed us, they also deserve safety and happiness. 
doesn't really help to wish them ill. All the difficult people, all the people who are confused and who cause problems because of their confusion, may all the challenging people in my life, in the world, may you be safe from harm. May you be happy, healthy, and at ease. And may all beings, seen and unseen, those near, those far away, human beings and non-human beings, may all beings be free from suffering and free from the causes of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.